This is a classic because what Rokako Yamauchi leaves unspoken is just as powerful as what is said out loud. This is a classic because apparently you could fit the whole set on the back of a truck and move it around. (laughs) This is a classic because it's got four great and distinct roles for Asian American women. This is a classic because these characters deserve to have their souls dance. And so do we. This is our history. This is our legacy. Hello, and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon theater podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Kalina Ko, she, her pronouns, a curator for Expand the Canon. And me, Emily Lyon, she, her pronouns, artistic director of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater and curator for Expand the Canon. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. Today, we are exploring Wakako Yamauchi's And the Soul Shall Dance from the Expand the Canon list, available at expandthecanon.com. If you were to go to that site, and you should, you would find this pitch. If you're looking for a wistful story about immigration, identity, and the American dream, then dive into the powerful yet sparse world of Wakako Yamauchi's And the Soul Shall Dance. Set in Great Depression-era California, this play follows two Japanese immigrant families and their young daughters as they struggle to make ends meet, integrate into U.S. society, and survive the whims of nature and each other. United by circumstance, the women find solace in each other, building bonds despite their differing impressions and traumas, and savoring the art that makes their souls dance. Intimately specific yet universally felt, this historical family drama illuminates the realities of immigration, labor struggles, and gender inequities that still resonate today. Let's jump into the plot of this play, shall we? Let's do it. Okay, there's so much that happens in this beautiful, beautiful play. And the Soul Shell Dance is set in 1935 in Southern California. So it's just coming out of the Great Depression. Hana and Murata are married Issei farmers, which are first-generation farmers from Japan. And their young daughter, Masako, has burned down their bathhouse. Oh, no. Yes, she was, you know, a little careless. And unfortunately, the whole structure has burned down. So... A neighbor of theirs, Mr. Oka, comes by, seeing the smoke, seeing the fire, checking in on them. And he's on his way to sell his horse, which is why he noticed the fire and the flames. And he's selling his horse because he would like to send for his daughter, who is also back in Japan. He's another farmer in Southern California who came over, is Issei, and wants to bring the rest of his family. His daughter is named Kyoko. And she was from his first marriage. So Mr. Oka is still married to his second wife, who is actually the sister of his first wife. So Kyoko is the daughter from his first marriage, and she's still been overseas. And he's really looking forward to having some money so he can finally meet his promise of bringing her over to him to be together. Mr. Oka starts realizing he's not sure that bringing Kyoko to the U.S. is totally the right thing to do, tearing her from her culture, her home. And Masako says she'll be friends with Kyoko and will help her acclimate to the U.S. They're fairly isolated out there. I think there's one other student in her class. It's a very small school that she goes to, Masako. So 
looking forward to having a buddy, to having a friend. Yeah. Meanwhile, now that they're bathhouse is burned down um <laughs> mr oka is like hey you know if you want to come over and use our bathhouse that's totally cool and hana masako's mother is a little hesitant mr oka's wife emiko isn't super friendly all the time there's like some tension there when they go over and hang and masako their daughter suggests well maybe they bring their victrola over so they don't have to talk or <laughs> have it be awkward so they bring over the gramophone that night to take baths. And it is, as Hannah was sort of predicting, it is a little bit tense. But they do put on a record and Amiko, Mr. Oka's wife, who has not spoken yet or said any words, she starts listening to one of the songs from Japan and cries at the nostalgia of it. And she goes back into the house and you can sort of see through the window that she's dancing alone to the music. Mm. Such an interesting introduction to her character. Yeah. So she disappears back in the house, but they quickly put on a livelier song. And she actually reappears. Amiko reappears to dance outside in front of the guests to this like much more festive tune. And Mr. Oka looks kind of upset about it. He gets kind of tense and he stands up and interrupts the dance and she disappears again. Which is also an interesting introduction to their relationship. Mm, yeah definite tension and drama oh yeah oh so much tension but both hana and murata go to bathe in the bathhouse and mr oka goes inside doesn't necessarily know what to say to masako so masako puts on a new record called the soul shall dance and amiko comes back out of the house and it's her favorite song. And she sings along to the song. And she and Masako have this really lovely conversation about what the song means and about dreams and art. And it's this moment where finally the tension lifts and there is connection. Apparently some of the song like translated is, drink the green wine and the dreams will dance. There's also a big theme of like drinking and alcohol and... Well, I guess also dreams and how those sort of let you escape from where you are at the time. So speaking of which, Emiko tells Masako a secret. She's planning to go back to Japan alone. Mm. She wants to escape. Wow. That's quite a big secret. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Oka comes back and they both go inside the house and have a huge fight. A huge fight and they're sort of both provoking each other and mr oka slaps amiko inside mm. the house and masako gets really terrified yeah i can only imagine what that must be like to be alone and witnessing such a like a violent act at 11 yeah yeah oh so uncomfortable and your parents are gone Whew. but again you can kind of tell why amiko wants to leave yeah so both of the families regather. The parents come back from the bath. Mr. Oka comes back outside and Emiko returns as well and now has a huge welt on her face. It's very clear that they've had a fight. And the Maratas are taken aback. They're very uncomfortable, understandably. You know, what are you supposed to do with that? And they sort of go to, to leave, get out of this sort of tangled moment. But Amiko 
wants them to stay. So she starts talking about how she loves the music and she actually used to sing and dance and play koto and she was highly trained and highly educated. And she really, you can kind of tell, and I think she kind of admits she doesn't really have anyone else to talk to. And Murata, Misako's father, is trying to break the tension and mentions Kyoko coming. And it's pretty clear that Amiko did not know that Mr. Oka was trying to get his daughter to come over. So there's a really interesting moment of like, oh, oh. And Kyoko is Emiko's niece in many ways, right? Yeah, literally. I mean, it's Kyoko is Emiko's niece and also, I guess, sort of her stepdaughter. Not really sort of. She's both her niece and her stepdaughter. Right, already complicated. And we find out part of the reason she's here, the reason she's here, is that her sister died and she got shipped off to the U.S. Wow. Yeah. So that's actually kind of the fight that they have right after this, is Mr. Oka and Amiko start talking about, like, why they resent each other in many ways. Amiko is this highly educated woman with lots of skills and talents who really loved her life in Japan. And she kind of looks down on Mr. Oka, who is, I think she calls him like basically Mr. Smart Peasant, clearly thinks he's a little bit less than and he deeply resents that and she resents their life. And Mr. Oka accuses Amiko of loving another man back in Japan. Mm. And she's like, yeah, I won't deny it. She's been in love. She was in love with someone else in Japan. He basically, he calls her a whore, really, um, and calls her a secondhand woman and that the whole town was gossiping about her. And there's not a lot of context on, you know, was this guy married or just did they love each other beforehand? It seems like they just loved each other. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, they could not get married or did not get married. So when her sister died, she was shipped off out from all of the gossip to California to Mr. Oka. Wow. So not only grieving the the passing of her sister, but also having to acclimate to like a whole new way of life. Yeah, which was so different than what she thought. You know, she's not playing music. She's not performing. She's not connected. And also grieving the death of her sister as well as grieving this love that she's lost. Mm. Yeah. And this whole life. Yeah. And Mr. Oka is like throwing blame at Amiko for just like screwing around and being into the arts and having this sort of more softer life or something. While his first wife worked really hard and he says worked herself to death. Hmm. And for a moment, there's actually this really nice moment of connection where they both wish she was still alive and that they loved her so much this person that connected them. But of course, that moment of connection is brief. And Mr. Oka is like, well, you know, maybe we could fight less. Maybe we could try to make this life here better. This isn't what either of us wanted. This isn't the life we planned. But maybe it could be not quite so bad. But Amiko kind of turns that down. She wants to hold on to her dream of going back to the life she loved, to the man she loved, to being the woman that she loved to be. And it says, no, I'm going to hold on to my dream. And the first act ends with that sense of disconnection and tension once again. In act two, Kyoko arrives. 
We've successfully sold the horse. She's come over from Japan. Mr. Oka has picked her up in Los Angeles and they've had a really lovely day or two, a giant feast. And Kyoko is from the countryside in Japan. And so not only is she exposed to a whole new country, but she's exposed to whole lots of new things. She's never had Chinese food before. And so she's a little bit shy as you would be if you're 14 years old and you've just landed in a totally weird new place where a lot of people don't speak your language. Right. (laughs) And with a dad you haven't seen in like 10 years. Right. So Kyoko is a few years older than Masako. They thought she was 15, but it seems like she's actually 14. But nonetheless, she looks and appears much more physically mature than Masako is at the time. And Masako is surprised by that and how separate that makes her feel. Rather than having sort of a companion in arms that I think she was anticipating. There's a foreign woman here who she doesn't feel like she knows necessarily how to relate to. So Oka and Kyoko show up at the Maratas for introductions and they go inside for drinks. But Emiko has sort of snuck up to investigate. And she and Masako have this really brief but lovely moment of connection and discussion, kind of realizing they both feel like outsiders on this group of adults, which is sort of this very sweet way to put it. So interesting that Amiko wasn't invited to the introduction. Yeah, that she wasn't invited even to go pick her up. Yeah. She's not part of the family. Yeah. But she also, you know, she didn't want to try as much. It's true. Yeah. Oh, so, so hard. But anyway, Hana, Masako's mom sort of pushes Masako to connect with Kyoko. She just landed here. She's trying to feel more connected. But again, like Masako has this sense of sort of alienation and disconnect. They have this really brief, awkward conversation about school and then kind of go inside. It falls flat. Oof, having flashbacks to my parents trying to push me to be friends with the family friends kids. Yeah. So we fast forward in time a little bit into the fall. School has started And Kyoko and Masako have have seen each other quite a bit at school, for sure. And it's late one night. It's raining. And Kyoko runs over to the Maradas. She knocks on the door loudly and asks for help. And it turns out Mr. Oka and Amiko have been fighting intensely. Like, one of them might die. So she runs through the rain. She runs through the field without a light searching for somewhere to feel safe. Mr. Oka and Amigo have been drinking for hours since the afternoon, and that really heightened the whole thing. And Mr. Oka got violent and was hitting Amigo in the face, in the stomach. It was not a good situation. Kyoko basically connects with Hana and shares that she is pretty miserable. She's been teased at school. She's older than the other kids at her grade, and even though she's skipping grades, she's still behind. She gets teased for not being able to speak English very well. The Okas fight all the time. Amiko is cold to her. And even Masako hasn't been, like, a wonderful friend. And Hana is really understanding and takes her in and warms her up and tries to just understand all of the sides of the dynamic that they sort of all came here for a better life and the life here isn't easy and it's harder to go back it's more complicated to go back um that everything kind of in this situation is complicated which is really what we've been sort of pulling at the threads of the whole play mr oka comes to get kyoko a little embarrassed and hana gives him this stern talking to 
saying, you know, you have to pull it together for your daughter. She is terrified and this is not okay. And luckily it kind of seems like he receives that message. So the next morning, Kyoko comes by to return the robe that Hana had given her and runs into Masako. And again, they've been sort of out of sync. Masako notices her red eyes from crying all night and that she doesn't have a lunch packed and still goes back to her old ways of teasing Kyoko about her English. And maybe that's reassuring (laughs) that it's not totally going to be weird. But finally, Kyoko turns the tables and is like, okay, I'm going to tease you about your Japanese, which she also stinks at. (laughs) And for the first time in the play, they like laugh at each other. And it finally feels like they're connected, which is a really nice just like moment, finally. Yeah, it's amazing to me that even back then, or I guess when Wakako Yamashi is writing this, the trick of teasing each other is still like the best way to make friends in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is very interesting that they connect over being a little bit rude back and forth. They can dish it out as well as they could take it. So our two younger women have connected. It's great. Murata and Hana are assessing the storm's damage to their field with so much rain last night, but they have the hope to return to Japan in two years, that maybe they'll have enough saved up, maybe things will go well and things will turn around, that they can finally take that savings and go home, which is what they've been saying everyone who comes here wants to ultimately do, is make money and go back and live like a king. It's really nice to feel that sense of hope nearing the end of the play. Yeah, especially after such a dark, it's been some heavy stuff in the past however long it's been in the play. It's nice to kind of be reminded of what it's all for, in a sense, Mm. of what all their hardship is for, even if it's not quite panning out the way they expected it to. Yeah, totally. What it's all for. Ugh, well said. So we fast forward a bit to the spring, and Kyoko comes out of the house looking much more like an all-American girl. She's gotten a perm, which is apparently all the rage now. Yeah, the symbol. Yes, such a status symbol at the time. She loves going to the movies. She loves magazines. She's really gotten into the culture. She's really kind of finally settling in. Mr. Oka has been buying her all these things and sort of taking care of her, which is a really nice moment to see. Yeah, he definitely has stepped it up after Hana gave him a stern talking to. Mm. But unfortunately, he also mentions, well, you know, I'm glad that you're feeling better, but our lease is going to be up in a few months and they'll probably have to move. At the time in America, Japanese people couldn't own land. They could just lease it for two to three years. And so soon enough, they would have to make yet another change now that she's finally feeling settled, of course. Yeah. God, imagine having to move again after feeling like you've got your feet under you. But still, Kyoko looks happy at the time. We haven't had to face that yet. But in a very stark comparison, Amiko comes out of the house looking uncomped and distressed and very upset with an empty can in her hand. She stops them from going to the movies and says, where is it? She's been saving up money to return to Japan And it turns out Mr. Oka has taken all of it and has been spending it on Kyoko. Oh, no. Yeah. So the perm, the movies, the magazines. But also, Mr. Oka's like, well, where did you get that money? You've been stealing it from me. Once again, back into this, like, kind of toxic cycle of this isn't what either of us wanted. Yeah. And And it's a tough moment. 
So Mr. Oka takes off. They go to the movies. And Amiko cries alone. And then somehow finds the strength or the desperation to laugh. She then, later that day, in desperation, she's packaged up some of these beautiful, precious kimonos that she had from her life in Japan. She brings them over to Hana and Masako, offering them to Masako. She's growing up. Does she need them? And if possible, could they give her a little money for these absolutely gorgeous gowns? Even just a little bit, little by little over time. And Hana just says they don't have it, that they're beautiful and and even tries to brainstorm, well, is there someone else she could sell them to to get full price? They deserve so much more than Hana could possibly give. But it's really clear that Emiko is devastated when she says no, that she's clearly depressed and really not okay, that her exit, her dream, the money for her dream to return is gone. And her sort of last ditch effort to find another way is gone. So she leaves very clearly not okay, depressed and quiet, taking both of the kimonos back home. And when Murata returns, Masako suddenly offers to help on a chore around the farm. And it's this interesting moment where Hana acknowledges, you know, I think she's really growing up. That night, Masako, returning from that chore, finds Amiko dancing alone in the field. She's wearing one of the kimonos and she is singing the soul shell dance. There's this moment where Amiko senses that someone is watching her and leaves. Masako picks up the sage leaf that she was dancing with and watches after her in the quiet. And that is how we end the play. Legacy. There are so many layers to this play and images and moments and it is at once so stark and yet so vivid. I love it. I love this play and I would love to see it on stage. But yeah, Kalina, what do you think? Why do you think this is a classic? What what sticks with you? What excites you about And the Soul Shell Dance? Yeah, I mean, what doesn't stick with me about And the Soul Shell Dance? I think it's exactly what you're saying. It is so simultaneously simple at the surface, but then I start to like think about it and think about it more and it's like a tree. It just gets more and more complex and like breaks out and branches and there's so many layers to it. I think I'm really drawn at first glance to sort of the very fact of sort of what Yamashi has chosen to write about her subject matter. I think that there is something really powerful in recognizing sort of the presence of these Japanese farmers who made up such a large part of the population in the 30s in California and what their daily life is like and recognizing sort of the isolation, but also the community that they form out of necessity from it. I think at the heart of this piece is really all of the like forced connections, even if they're not, you know, like Kyoko and Masako don't really connect at first, but there's this like necessity to continue to try because they're like two of the three kids at school. And it's such a small closed off community, both because it's rural and even more so because they're all Japanese immigrants. I think it's that idea of connection and community that's really interesting to me. Yeah. And also, you know, she's picked such an interesting time to set it in. She wrote this play in the 70s, in 1976, but she set the play in 1935. And it's this moment coming out of the Great Depression, but also just before World War II and the Japanese internment camps. And 
this really just tough period of time. And in terms of that sort of like mystery of the ending, are we ending in a moment where maybe the Maratas have become successful and they do return to Japan? If they do, are they okay? If they stay, are they okay? You know, I think there's all this sort of the historical setting as well just gives so much depth and yeah, I don't want to say like pain because it's not just that, but just so many layers to the hope, the longing and the isolation that these characters feel. Yeah. I think what's so lovely about this piece is that she's balanced out. Like there is obviously a lot of pain and desperation and tragedy, for lack of a better word, in this piece. I mean, there's like domestic abuse and there's isolation and depression. But I think Wakaku Yamauchi also manages to capture all of their hopes and dreams that sort of yeah. keep them fueled. I think what Emiko says sort of in Act 1 about needing to hold on to her dreams to keep her going, I think out of context feels a little bit almost like foolish to like believe that your dreams can make your life better. But then as the play continues to progress... It becomes so clear to me how much they need to have their dreams in order to justify sort of what they're doing. And mm. the Murata's dream of going back to Japan helps keep them fueled as they work these long hours and try to figure out what to do without a bathhouse that's been burned down. And so I think the balance of the tragedy with the like hope and the dreams and the moments of happiness and joy and figuring out how to fit in is a really, really well balanced in this play to keep me happy despite all of this sadness. Yeah. And I was thinking too, that it's at once this beautiful, complex ensemble piece about all of their hopes and dreams, as well as their pains and frustrations and necessity. It's also... And I, I don't love this phrase coming of age story, because I think we're always all growing in any play should or any story should really be about like, how do how did we grow in this particular way? But in a lot of ways, you can really think about the play is about Misako's self discovery, and how she is going to grow into dealing with the reality of living in the US at this time, she goes from being careless and burning down the bathhouse and being much more interested in reading and kind of like being in her own little world than she does with wanting to help around the house or be a dedicated part of the family and the farm. And at the end, I think that moment where she volunteers to go help with a chore to work on the farm is this really just fascinating moment of growth and her perspective change and all the things that she's seen of what being an adult in this time, in this place with these challenges what that's going to take. And I'm so curious to, I like want a sequel. I want to know what happens to Asako. <laughs> you know, it's actually interesting in researching this play, fun fact for you, this play was actually adapted from a short story that is centered around Masako. Ah, I think the short story is Masako like retelling the story of her parents and <sighs> that's this story. And so it like starts and ends with Masako like reflecting and setting the scene for this memory story. And then Yamachi turned it into a play. Yes. Oh my God. And we're going to talk about that too, which is so cool. The setup of how she was encouraged to do that is really cute, but that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, staying a little bit more with the play, we sometimes when we're curating these lists have a play that we're like this one, this is our first, this is like the anchor for the list. We know it's going to be on there. And for 2021, it was like Le Blanc. 
as soon as we read Le Blanc, it was like, this play. This is going on the list. You can figure out what else, but definitely this. And for me, the first play I read that I was like, oh, this should be on the list is The Soul Shall Dance. And I think I fell in love with it because of all these incredible moments that Yamauchi has connecting the women. And a lot of plays, classic plays, and a lot of plays on our list have this like very easy friendship between women and like the depth of that connection and the tried and true bestie kind of model. And I think the social dance looks at relationships between women and women of different ages and different moments in their lives and represents them so truthfully and dynamically and mysteriously in some ways. There's just a sense of like the honest magic of connecting, of finding solace that I think is so beautiful and exciting and compelling about the relationships in this play. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think the relationship that surprised me the most when I read it was the one between Hana and Kyoko. Oh, because I think so many... Not in that it like came out of nowhere, but I think so many stories pair up relationships based on age. And I think mm. that there was something really lovely about seeing the two of them connect. And I think there's still an element of like mother-daughter there, but it was lovely to see the two of them also form a relationship and not mm. just leave it to like the mothers, the wives, and then the daughters. I think it's nice to see a whole community embracing this young girl who has come to this new country. Yeah, I think it's just really lovely to sort of see the parallels between the Kyoko-Hana relationship and the Masako-Emiko relationship. Yes! That's the one that I fell in love with and surprised me, mm. was Emiko and Masako, and how similar they feel in so many ways. In that sense of, like, I'm an outsider from the adults. Like, what a surprising moment that is. And Emiko is like, can I tell you a secret? Which feels so, like, teenage girl yeah. cute friendship building yeah 30 year old woman to an 11 year old like i think that sort of sense of understanding and yet of course deep deep differences speaking of the miko and masako relationship i think it's so interesting how they have such diametric like oppositional perspectives on american life almost like mm. Amiko really wants to leave. She's like, I have no interest in trying to live here. I want to go back to Japan. I am not interested. Whereas I think Masako mentions a couple times that she's like really trying to fit into American life. She cares a lot about being able to speak English well and makes fun of Kyoko for it and is really interested in a degree of assimilation and trying to live here. And yet the two of them still find such connection and sort of being outsider. It's just so, so full of complexity. Yeah. I love it. I love this play. <laughs> I know. It's so great. It's a classic. Um, totally. I also, just totally speaking to that, one of my favorite scenes, which is actually one of the scenes we filmed, is Masako talking about how she loves the book Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> and Hana's like, why? It's white people doing totally different things. And Masako's like, no, it's about, the quote is, she says, it's about the hardships and the floods and the droughts and how they have nothing but each other. And how much Masako sees herself in American life and also like sees them, yet how Hana sees it as so different. And they're both right. I think it's just like that's encapsulates in many ways the brilliance of this play. And the other thing you mentioned, this sense of like 
longing. I almost feel it's not quite Jacobian. That feels like an overstatement, but the sense for the longing for either the future or the past or to be elsewhere or for belonging. There's just this deep sense of yearning throughout the play. Every time I read this play, I think of a different sort of way in which the title applies and how mm. how the soul factors into this whole piece. There's a relationship for all of these characters between dreams and the soul almost. And I, I don't know, I'm parsing through sort of how the soul... I'm curious to know what you think about sort of how the soul factors into all of their lives and what it means for each of them to have their souls dancing. I love that you put those two things together, that their dreams impact their soul. I think that's so insightful. I almost wonder if in a way, like their dreams are their soul. Hmm. In, in not entirely, of course, but in some sort of thematic way that if you give up on your dreams, if you give up on your heart, that moment where Amiko is like, no one's going to buy these kimonos. There's no way out. There's just no way out. It feels like her soul has dipped, has disappeared. The stage directions talk about depression in that moment. And yet in the next scene, we see her dancing and singing and trying to get back to her soul. And I think it really keys into how much we need dreams and how much they situate how we understand who we are right? Like that everybody mm -hmm. came over to this better place, to this better life with the dream, the American dream, and that need to sort of reconcile the dream, the hope with the reality feels like something the play is constantly circling and circling. And I don't know if it's inviting us to constantly have a different dream. I would be interested to think about, well, at the end, do we know what Masako's dream is? Does she have a new dream? Does she dream mm -hmm. to be a woman dancing in a kimono? Does she dream to have a successful farm? Does she dream to be a writer? Like, where is her soul at the end of this play? So someone do this, we'll have a talk back, and then someone will write a sequel, and we'll do that too, and it'll be great. Yes. History. Oh my gosh. So this play is amazing. As we both have said, we've acknowledged. Also, you're amazing. Kalina is the dramaturg that helped support a lot of our research for this play. So I also want to have you kick off support talking about this incredible writer. A lot of the research we have is research you've <laughs> done. So do you want to talk us through a little bit about why Wakako Yamauchi is kind of the coolest? Yeah. Oh my God. It was so easy to research. Well, easy because it was so fun to research. She is a true multi-hyphenate. She is a groundbreaking Japanese-American writer, poet, painter, and cartoonist. So yes. working in a visual dimension too, which is amazing to me. And, you know, so much of her work across all dimensions really speaks to a Japanese-American experience and gender roles and sort of relationships between women and sort of the very unique and specific dimension of like Japanese American gender roles in particular, I think. So a little bit about her. She was born in California in 1924 to two first generation immigrant parents. So her parents would have been Issei, much like most of the characters of Anna Solskjaer Dance. 
She also grew up in a rural farming community, and her parents were itinerant farmers in California. Oh my gosh. So they would move from location to location with a house just big enough to fit on the back of a truck and push to the next spot. So we're seeing some parallels here, I think. So many parallels. (laughs) Yes, definitely see where she gets her inspiration from. I'm so curious about, like, the house on the back of a truck. Like, I want to see photos. I know. And with that, like, little tidbit about in the play about having to move every two to three years, like... Right. I'm like, is this whole set meant to fit on the back of a truck? Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that. Ooh, do it as a touring production, everybody. When World War II started, Yamaji was still a teenager. And all of sort of the anti-Japanese hatred forced her to stop attending high school. And then at 17, Yamauchi and her family were sent to post an Arizona internment camp for a year and a half. She actually started her entire artistic career at the camp as a cartoonist for their newspaper. She's so cool. I know. I need to go find some of her cartoons, I think, because I've got more questions I need to know. After the war, she was released from the internment camp and moved to Utah and then Chicago, where she was first introduced to theater. In 1948, she mastered Chester Yamauchi, and they settled in Los Angeles. They had a daughter together and then got divorced, and it was after that divorce that she really continued to dive back into sort of her art and her, yeah, her artistic side. So in Los Angeles, she studied painting at the Otis Art Institute, which is now known as the Otis College of Art and Design, um, and worked for the Los Angeles Tribune. She would also occasionally write some short stories for the Japanese newspaper Rafu Shimpo. Um, and it's because of these short stories that she would eventually get her big break. And also it's from these short stories that she derived two of her most well-known plays. Oh gosh, what are those plays? Might one of them be relevant to this podcast? Perhaps, perhaps. Maybe she turned one of them into a full play. <laughs> Well, anyways, in 1974, one of her short stories, And the Soul Shall Dance, does that <gasps> sound familiar at all, Emily? <laughs> um, was published in I... I never know how to say that without sounding a little ridiculous, but an anthology of Asian American writers. The founder of East West Players, Mako, read the short story and reached out and encouraged her to turn it into a play. Which is so amazing. East West Players is still a huge important company and doing such amazing work that just reached out was like hey this seems great why don't you continue to be great in yet another dimension which of course she was like sure why not oh this is also such a funny story that you included this is great. <laughs> yeah, so what's fascinating about this is at some point in her life, someone did an oral history project and interviewed Yamauchi and asked her how she learned to write a play. And so she says, she says, I sent my daughter out to get a book on how to write a play, period, full stop. And then she wrote a play, which I'm just like, That's how we do it. Wow, I wish if I just went to the New York Public Library and checked out a book and read it and then wrote a play, <laughs> like, <laughs> wild. And that play, which, you know, to add on top of all of that, it premiered at East West Players later that year. So also an incredibly fast turnaround for anyone keeping track yeah. of the timeline right now. And that play won the 1977 Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle Award for the best new play and was later produced for public broadcast. Two fun facts about this. One, a lot of people consider this play to have really helped put East West Player on the map. They were already like a very big Asian American theater company in their own right and like was fully established at that point. But people anecdotally say that this certainly helped boost that reputation to like a broader audience. 
And the second fun fact is that this broadcast of the play was the second Asian American play, I believe, to ever be broadcast on national television. So oh, cool. Some very groundbreaking things happening. So it was produced. It won an award. It did great. Which is also... Like, what an amazing, your first time out, I, I mean, A, obviously you're super crazy talented, people are begging you to turn this into a play, you're like, just casually do it, and then win an award. Yeah. Like, she's brilliant. She's totally it's brilliant. Amazing. And other people recognized her brilliance, too. In 1980, Joseph Papp, the founder of The Public, brought her other play, The Music Lesson, into the theater and, and produced it. This was in response to a pretty strong backlash in New York about the lack of opportunities for Asian American artists at the public in particular. And so he brought in her other play, which also has an entirely API cast, I believe, to do. And that play received similar positive acclaim as And the Soul Child Dance. So she's two for two, wrote a second play, did it in New York, and it did really well. Yeah, she's got a few other plays that are also... Excellent and definitely worth reading. Yes. And she just never stopped writing. She just kept writing things, kept publishing things, both poetry, plays, short stories. At 70 years old, she published an anthology titled Songs My Mother Taught Me, Stories, Plays, and Memoir. And then in 2010, those short stories that she wrote primarily in her 70s and 80s were published together in a book called Rosebud and Other Stories. So she just continued to write and publish and be prolific and a wonderful artist. I do want to also know if she ever cartooned. Did she continue to cartoon? A great question. Worth of research. Maybe someone needs to publish all of her cartoons together. <gasps> yes. Just throwing some ideas out there for those of you listening. <laughs> Unfortunately, in 2018, Gamachi passed away in California, but she passed away at the age of 93, so she had a really wonderful long life. Her plays are still frequently produced at Asian American theaters around the country and provide some really crucial leading lady opportunities for Asian American women, both young women and older women, which I think is a really delightful piece to highlight out of all of her work. But despite them being produced at a lot of Asian American theaters, I think they're also worthy of being produced at non-Asian American theaters and should be done more, generally. Exactly. These are classic plays. They are wonderful. They are What's the phrase? It's how specific they are that makes them universal. Like mm. the themes of these plays, the themes of this play are so deeply felt that I can't imagine an audience who would not get and just be deeply affected by this incredible piece. Yeah. Even the idea of just dreams driving you on. Ugh, I could go back and talk more about it, but absolutely very resonant and very specific. In an email to the New York Times, Tim Dang, a former artistic director of East-West Players, remembers Yamauchi as a pioneer as an Asian-American woman writing about the Japanese-American experience to a broader audience who knew very little about the Japanese-American community in the U.S. Her stories brought humanity and a face to a community that was labeled the other after World War II at the internment camps. And so I think it's just goes to show how impactful her work is to not just an API audience, but to a broader audience as well. And I think it's particularly resonant now and always. I absolutely agree. Mm -hmm. They are classics, period. They are excellent plays, period. And they are worthy of time, of production, of attention, of consideration, and of are relating to them. I mean, they're just really good plays. Well said. I agree. It's like, maybe that's why we're here. 
<laughs> it is almost like that is our whole reason for existence. Here is a recording from a filmed scene from And the Soul Child Dance, performed by Dorothea Gloria and Karen Lee. Do they always wear kimonos like this in Japan, Mama? Most of the time. Will Kyoko be wearing a kimono like this? They don't dress like that. Not for every day. I wonder what she's like. Probably like you. What do you think she's like? She's probably taller. Mr. Oka isn't tall. And pretty. Mr. Oka, well, I don't suppose she'll look like her father. <laughs> Mrs. Oka is pretty. She isn't Kyoko-san's real mother, remember? Oh, hmm. that's right. But they're related, and we'll soon see. Will they bring Kyoko over to see us? Of course. First thing, probably. And you'll be very nice to her, won't you? Sure. Hmm. <laughs> I'm glad I'm going to have a friend. I hope she likes me. Ah, she'll like you. Yeah, Japanese girls are very polite. We have to be or our mamas get mad at us. Well, then I should be getting mad at you more often. <laughs> it's often enough already, mama. <laughs> oh! Look at this, Mama. I'm going to show her this book. She won't be able to read at first. I love this story, Mama. It's about settlers on a prairie. We live in a prairie, don't we? Prairie? Does that mean desert? I think so. We live in a prairie. This is about hardships and floods and droughts and how they have nothing but each other. We have nothing but each other, but these people, they are white people. Sure, Mama, but they come from the East, just like how you and Papa came from Japan. We came from the far, far East. That's different. White people are different from us. I know that. White people among white people. That's different from Japanese among white people. You know what I'm saying? I know that. How come they don't write stories about us, about Japanese people? Because we're nobodies here. If I didn't read these, there'd be nothing for me. Some of the things you read, you're never going to know. I can dream, though. Sometimes dreaming makes living harder. Better to keep your head out of the clouds. Hmm. That's not much fun. Thank you to Dorothea Gloria and Karen Lee for a wonderful reading, as well as Anisha Katarkar for directing, sound design by Stephanie Coriatis, and production stage management by Jessica Fournier. And thanks to Kate Howell for editing this episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon theater podcast. Learn more at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit the share button and forward it along to a friend, a colleague, or a professor. For information on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram at Hedgepig Ensemble Theater, Facebook slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater, 
or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donating at the link in the comments below. It makes a huge, huge difference. Again, I'm Kalina. And I'm Emily. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) 